Episode 105 of the Bowery Boys. Extra, extra! The Newsboys strike of 1899. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With a... Extra, extra special, special yes. episode uh, this week. Uh, we're looking at a forgotten event in New York City history. It happened 111 years ago this July. In that hot summer of 1899. Now imagine the city paralyzed, the press unable to get their newspapers out, and the streets filled with hundreds of boys. Sometimes thousands. Thousands of boys and young men, newsies people who delivered the newspapers, going on strike. This would be the Newsboy Strike of 1899. To tell their story, of course, we also have to dip back and tell the story of journalism and the press in New York in the 19th century. The press that we are about to describe literally looks nothing like the way that we know the media in New York City today. Well, there are certainly are some holdovers, but we can get to that. We'll discuss that in a little bit. Then, of course, how they distributed these newspapers to the citizenry via these sometimes homeless boys and girls who would stand on street corners and sell these newspapers will give you a little bit of insight into their lives and into the events of 1899 that drove these kids to actually go on strike, which was an incredibly unusual thing back in 1899. We're talking 10 to 15-year-olds. Let's just say for these newsies, life ain't no musical. So kick back as we deliver the history of the Newsboy Strike of 1899. Well, now that we're in the mood, Greg, perhaps you can situate us, although I don't really know if there is a situation for this episode because it's an Well, it's, it's an, an, event, an event, and right. it takes place all over the city in all five boroughs. Mm-hmm. But if we want to focus on one place in Manhattan where a lot of the action would be centralized, we can think of a place that's actually the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge on the Manhattan side, a place that used to be called the Printing House Square. Ah, uh, yes. Is that today's Park Row? Uh, Yes, it's at the northern tip of Park Row. Park Row being, of course, the former area where all the newspapers used to be. And Printing House Square was where a lot of the papers would get distributed to these newsboys. And today, Pace University sits there. And there's actually a statue of Benjamin Franklin. This episode is near and dear to my heart. I almost feel like in a past life, I might have been a newsie, a newsboy. So I'm looking forward to jumping into this. But to do this properly, we need to wind it back to the very beginning, just sort of set the stage, because newspapers were such a way of life and so important to the daily life of New Yorkers by this time. By which you mean 1899 and the strike. By 1899 and the strike. Right, because it wasn't always that way. I mean, if we rewind, really, we go to 1725. If you'll just drop back with me for a second to 1725, when New York got its first paper, the New York Gazette. It's not really that notable, mostly because it was a typical colonial paper at the time. It was just sort of touting the line from the British governor, not ruffling any feathers. And well, there you had it. Just eight years later in 1733, I think something very important happens. And that's the founding of John Peter Zanger's New York 
Weekly Journal. His paper, Zenger's paper, is really important because he actually took on controversial policies of the governor at the time, uh, who was a man named William Cosby. That's right. He took on Bill Cosby's <laughs> yes, policy. Bill, okay. He would later take on Governor Michael James Fox at 830's <laughs> policies. Well, Cosby threw Zenger in jail because, well, the nerve of actually publishing something that went counter to the governor's policies, uh, he charged him with libel. And the judge actually in the trial instructed the jury to find Zenger guilty if, in fact, uh, he had printed anything that was demeaning of his character. So at that point, libel was actually defined as really writing something bad about somebody, regardless of its truthiness, Mm -hmm. as somebody would say. (laughs) The jury came back and found him not guilty. I believe that that decision really bolstered the cause for free press in the colony. And not for nothing, it sort of sets the modern standard for what became First Amendment rights and, and freedom of speech. Now, during the American Revolution, papers continued to push back against the authorities. Remember, these were papers being put out during British rule. So this was sort of a daring position to take. And you could be thrown in jail just for if you were caught even so much as distributing them, much less publishing them and writing them. Now, a little bit later in the 1800s would be the invention of the penny press. And this Mm. is really where we start to get into our territory today. The first of the penny presses to be published in 1833 was The Sun, published by Benjamin Day. Four pages, and most of these were just four pages. Mm -hmm. They were limited by how many issues they could actually print. The Sun in 1835 could only publish about 125 papers an hour per press. So it had a circulation of 15,000. About 20 years later, they were publishing 18,000 editions an hour. So because of technological innovations, they were able to produce a whole lot more. They could could have sold 10 times as as many, I'm sure. And this is one of the reasons that other newspapers also stepped in. In 1835, we had the Herald, which was founded, another penny paper started by James Gordon Bennett. And by 1837, it was selling 20,000 issues a day at two cents. So it was a two-penny paper. Bennett's Herald was not afraid, though, of some sensationalist stories. He didn't shy away from covering sex and crime and murders and such. Not to plug a solo podcast at this point, but the murder of Mary Rogers. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that made that murder so scandalous was just in the ways it was being covered and written about and some of the sort of outlandish things that were being said and how the truth was being distorted. These types of things were taking off and catching fire in these newspapers and selling all these copies. Not all papers, however, caught the sensationalist bug. Notably, in 1841, the New York Tribune was founded by Horace Greeley, another penny paper. Now, Greeley was a very talented journalist and pushed his own viewpoints, which was normal at the time in Mm -hmm. papers for the publisher and the editor to push their own views. About the same year, in 1840, the Telegraph arrived, and this really transformed things, because before, I mean, they were waiting for messages from ships to show up. It took a long time for news to get to the papers. With the Telegraph, they could publish things right away, and in 1848, actually, the Associated Press was formed as a wire service. And finally, Greg, to set us up in 1851, we have the formation of the New York Daily Times, which would become, of course, the New York Times. Hmm. These papers notoriously always grouped around each other, right? I guess they shared certain resources as well. One of the reasons that they actually formed on Park Row was because, A, it was super close to City Hall, but it was close to a lot of other institutions that were in this neighborhood. Most notably, the very first Tammany Hall was right here at what would be called the Printing House Square. 
and let us also not forget that the city wasn't so big back then, so it, it really didn't go too much further. So that's what the general structure of the newspapers and how they were started how they were actually sold to customers, you, they did have newsstands, you know, where you actually would go up and you would drop off some money and you would get a newspaper. This wouldn't be a custom until the, the age of like the depots, where you would have gigantic newsstands that sold a variety of different objects. So how you got these newspapers out is that you hired people to sell them on the streets. To stand on street corners and... To hawk them. To hawk them, to shout out the headlines. And of course, because this was a not a great job, it sort of went to the lowest rung of society at this point, which was poor children. And so this is how the newsy comes to be. Now, I'll be actually using the word newsboy probably more often, but there were newsgirls. And in fact, adults also did this. But like I said, it was a very undesirable job. There was also a dissolution of a, a lot of these major outdoor marketplaces at this time. So instead of being sold all in one outdoor place, the idea of push carts and street sellers and street vendors started at this time. So it just made natural sense to sell newspapers as well. The streets of the 19th century were filled with young, poor, sometimes homeless kids. They were sometimes newsboys, but they were also boot blacks was the other really big job that kids of this age with shoe um, shiners, shoe shiners right. uh, just polishing shoes. You know, these are just egregious displays of child labor situations in the United States well before there were any laws, of course. And the thing is, is like when you think of a newsie like right now, I mean, you, don't you think of something? Oh, that's fun. Like, you know, oh, they're yeah, having sure. a great time. In fact, they're that singing was, and dancing. That was also that was also actually a press construct in the 19th century because they wanted to make sure that you, as a reader, weren't feeling so badly about mm. the people who were selling you the newspaper. If, if you were thought they were quote plucky, happy newsboys that were just sitting there and just having a gay old time, you weren't thinking about how they were sort of being treated. In one extent, you can say that there was a certain freedom to it. I mean, you were your own boss. You were dealing with other kids your own age. It was really how you did was based on your own skills. If you if you found the right street corner in New York, you could really make it in the city. And you know, by the late nineteenth century, there were a lot more street corners and there were a lot more people. But if you find the right street corner, is that because you were keeping your sales, or how exactly did that work? If you were a standard newsboy, you would go down at crack of dawn. You would go down to Printing House Square. That's where all the papers were being made early in the morning. It would just have this stench of ink. Mm. There would be usually a paper you would be aligned to, but you weren't contracted to them in any way. Kind of like gangs, where like, I'm a Herald newsboy, I'm selling these newspapers, and that's my corner, and that's my turf and territory. And they would buy the papers themselves and then resell them? What they would do, for 50 cents, they would, they would go and they would get 100 newspapers. They would have to go out to the corners and they would have to sell every one of those newspapers. And they only made a profit if they sold over a certain amount. So sure. say like if it was 100 papers, they made a profit if they sold over 60. Now, of course, I mean, the problem with that is, of course, sometimes you didn't sell them all and you were just stuck with them. And so, or it was no a slow news day and people didn't care or a holiday or something. And if there was terrible weather, no one was out buying papers. Now, this is, of course, one of the many hardships of being a newsie. Of course, like standing there in snow and wind trying to hawk a newspaper. It's also crazy just to think that these big papers owned by millionaires, and this would, of course, become even more exaggerated as the century wears on, 
that they were actually doing such brisk business selling to children. I mean, it was yes. the children who were buying. Oh, and as we'll see later, they actually like use this as a method to sort of allay costs. Some of the horrors that you would have to deal with if you were a newsie is, of course, a lot of the brutal competition from other newsies. Children would experience a lot of violence during this time, mugging, and you know, depending on what age and body size you oh, are, right. you could be attacked by other newsies. From the perspective of the upper class New Yorker, this created a, quote, aggressive class of loud and sometimes obnoxious children who would be standing at the street corner. You would always have the children's voices echoing in your ear the whole time. Now, I mean, who actually were these kids? I mean, most of them were the children of immigrants. The lucky ones came from poor families, like had someone to go home to every night. And this money, these nickels and dimes they were getting were supporting their families. But a lot of them were homeless kids. They were either thrown out of their homes. They were either runaways. There were no rooms in their homes, or even in some cases, they actually came to New York. They were had been orphans the whole time, and they somehow managed to get here and were just living out on the street. They joined a whole system of homeless children that, in the parlance of the 19th century, would have been called street Arabs, is the sort hmm. of like glossy name they would give all of these like poor, hungry children that were living everywhere. The plight of these kids is it was not unknown to people at the time. I mean, writers like Horatio Alger wrote a whole book about children the life on the streets one quote from 1866 said i remember one cold night seeing some 10 or a dozen of the little homeless creatures piled together to keep warm beneath the stairway of a new york sun office and the public for the most part turned a blind eye well i mean there's so much that goes unseen to the seen eye in new york city i mean there's so much that when you walk down the street i mean if you were to really look there'd be a lot of very ugly things that happen now occasionally one of two of these newsboys would would actually break out would actually get a life someone like steve brody who would be called quote the napoleon of the newsboys he's the guy who jumped off the brooklyn bridge and actually made a whole career of the fact that he had been the one that jumped off the brooklyn bridge he opened his own tavern he toured in a play and everything and he even like his dress style influenced the newsboys dress style in the 1880s they all started wearing these very stylish blue caps because steve brody started doing it for the most part though these these kids are really watching out for themselves i mean there's this really sad story that i read one of these poor boys had been killed in an accident like in a uh, had been run over by a horse like something a street accident and all the sort of neighboring newsies are around that corner would pull their money for a couple days so they could just give this poor boy a, 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 like a little burial because oh. um, there was no one to watch over them for the most part. However, there were some aid organizations that were reaching out for help. There were churches that would open up their basements and that would allow some of these children to sleep there. In 1853, the Children's Aid Society was founded by Charles Loring Brace, and that's actually still around today, but it was originally started to take care of some of this mounting homeless problem. Brace opened the Newsboy Lodging House, and that would be at the corner of Fulton and Nassau Street, and for a nickel a night... If you were one of these uh, homeless kids, you could just go there and you'd probably have to share a bed with two or three people. But, I mean, on a cold night, it didn't matter. There was another lodging house that opened in 1874. And I believe that this may be the lodging house at 9 Duane Street that a lot of the newsies that we're about to talk about were living in. 
They would organize on occasion before 1899. Like, it's not like they didn't just suddenly decide that, like, right. we should well, strike. Also, we seem to be skipping several decades here. So this just sort of right. continued on for many decades. The first documented newsboy strike that I could find, anyway, was in 1886. And it was actually in Brooklyn. And it was a battle between newsies from Brooklyn and newsies from neighboring Williamsburg. The newsboys from Brooklyn were getting charged a different rate than the ones from the ones in Williamsburg. They got enraged and they did a strike and they worked it out. There was even one that actually happened on News Row in 1889, 10 years before the year that we're about to speak of, in which a small bonfire, and there were a few arrests, but mostly there's still sort of an unseen presence. But something happens with a couple of the two major newspapers of the day that basically spurs these kids to violence. And to really understand what that is, we have to talk about those two papers. We would be talking about Joseph Pulitzer's New York World and William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. First, let me just sort of introduce the characters here. We have Joseph Pulitzer, or Pulitzer, but are we saying Pulitzer? Is that what we're saying tonight? I have seen and heard both. I'm leaning towards Pulitzer, but if you say Pulitzer, that's totally fine with me. Thanks for your help. (laughs) Um, Now, Joseph Pulitzer... Joseph Pulitzer was quite a figure. We obviously know his name today um, because of the prestigious award that is given out every year Mm -hmm. uh, at the Columbia Journalism School. His name's associated with journalism. Absolutely. Journalistic excellence. Well, his history is a bit complicated because he really built his career in his sensational paper, The New York World, and a certain style of writing that would later be termed yellow journalism. But at the same time, his story is often oversimplified. He found much success with his papers, as well as a very energetic and young competitor who was reading his paper at the time, named William Randolph Hearst. Now, back to Pulitzer, he immigrated to the U.S. from Germany, made his way out west, and in 1878 made his St. Louis Post-Dispatch the largest paper in St. Louis. And still around. Still very much around. Mm -hmm. Now, in 1883, he bought the New York World, in New York and moved to New York, and he focused a tremendous amount of energy on how to increase the circulation of the world. 
because he saw the circulation as the key to its financial success. He saw that the financial success would actually be in the advertising revenue, not so much in the newsstand revenue. Which is a modern concept. Well, which is still with us. Mm -hmm. He also focused on other things. He focused on stories that entertain the masses, especially the waves of immigrants who were coming, the working classes, uh, the poorer classes. So he covered stories of crime and passion and such, but he also had a certain idealism and so so he wrote editorials. He wanted to, in the front of the issue, he wanted to entertain people. And on the opinion page, he wanted to educate the people. He was also into making this newspaper like a world-class institution. I mean, at one point, I mean, he had he built the world's tallest building right here on Newspaper Row. Yes, he'd built it in 1890. The world's tallest office building, at least for a while. The thing about Pulitzer that I find fun is that he just kept tweaking his paper, trying to figure out what would work. He introduced things to his paper that we still very much have today. He introduced multi-column headlines. Before this, imagine this, like <laughs> yeah. a front page, and we're not talking tabloid size yet because tabloids weren't here. Mm -hmm. It was broadsheet. There could be, say, seven columns on the front page, and each one had its own headline that would just wrap for many, many rows. It was Pulitzer that said, wait a second, why don't we take the most important story and put it on the right side of the paper? Because up until then, it had been on the left side. So he was also studying where people look and then group several columns together and make it a three or four column headline. Or if it's really important, make it go the whole broadsheet. It's just all of this part of this idea of just getting people's attention, making things louder and bolder. Right. He introduced the screamer headlines that were even kind of inappropriate because he could now, you right. know, he could put it in big, bold type and really get people's attention. Well, if they were inappropriate, it would just make people want to buy them more. Like, what on earth is he talking about? Just like the Post today. Get this. He introduced the photo on the front page. Really? Well, this... Sometimes it was even taboo. Sometimes it was even doctored. Again, a modern concept. In 1896, he introduced color in the uh, Sunday supplement, and the color went into the comic strips. He had a comic uh, strip called Hogan's Alley, starring the, quote, yellow kid. All of these things, Greg, worked for Pulitzer. Circulation exploded. He also hired top journalists like Nellie Bly, who would go around the world, sometimes undercover. Now, this also gained him a big competitor. William Randolph Hearst was an unusual character, fictionalized, of course, in Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. He was a mining heir. He studied at Harvard and then went back to San Francisco, where he took over his father's paper in 1887, The Examiner. And he brought Pulitzer's techniques to that paper. And what do you know? But the, the examiner's circulation also increased. So he then moved off to New York and snatched up the New York Journal, which mm -hmm. had actually been owned by Albert, who was Pulitzer's brother. So it was sort of in wow. the Pulitzer family at mm -hmm. one time. But soon became a, a big rival. Exactly. Located right there also on the same strip. They went to war with each other. In 1896, actually, Hearst hired away Pulitzer's reporters. In fact, the entire Sunday supplement set of reporters were hired over to the world. I mean, that's good stuff. <laughs> that's glamorous journalism. Back in the day. <laughs> Scooping each other on stories. He even hired the cartoonist who did Hogan's Alley um, so that the yellow kid started appearing in the journal. So there was this really weird moment because then Pulitzer went and got his own cartoonist the to same. continue carrying the yellow kid. What? So there were 
two versions. It's like the two popes, you know, <laughs> Mul- that Multi-yellow kids, like right, different dimensions. Two yellow kids. And it was because of this that both of these papers and the journalism that they encouraged and brought on New York, people started referring to these two papers as the yellow kid papers, then the yellow papers. And today we just call it yellow journalism. And refer to it generally as meaning salacious, tawdry, sensationalist Not stories. Not quite true, screaming headlines. In fact, I'm about to mention one of the major topics that saw both of these men and their newspapers at their absolute finest. And by finest, I mean at their most sensational. Now, these are the two biggest selling papers in New York, would you say? There's other papers. Oh, yeah. Pulitzer was forced to cut his rate down to a penny Mm because he had been at two pennies and Hearst was at a penny. They were big sellers, big successes. But keep in mind, there aren't just like one or two other papers. There's dozens of papers being sold in New York. Of course, various In different languages. In different languages. There's German papers, of course, and there's some Italian papers, all being out there sold by all these newsies. Okay? So that's the picture. We've set it. We're finally here. We've set the stage. Now, nothing sells newspapers like a far-off war because, of course, you can say all sorts of outlandish things and you can characterize the the enemy in this case. And they find a very surprising out-of-left-field topic, that topic being Spain. So Mm -hmm. in 1898, Cuba was in the midst of a violent revolt and being Spanish property back in the day, Spain decided that they were going to send forces down to quell the violence there. This would, of course, become the Spanish-American War. New York was a a pro-Cuban place, not only because the situation reflected the battle for American independence, but, I mean, there were a lot of New York-owned businesses in Cuba, like sugar and, no surprise, cigars. Mm Mm-hmm. The press exaggerated all of these events to sell newspapers. I mean, it has been called the first real press-driven war, as a matter of fact, with such headlines as refined young women stripped and searched by brutal Spaniards. I mean, just imagine that being right. screamed by a child at the corner of on the corner of where you live. There was one headline that just said, War? Sure. And then the most famous headline that came from this, of course, remember the Maine. Naturally, with all a lot more people were buying newspapers, like the circulations for all news, all the newspapers who were covering this went right up. So they decided, well, we need to charge a little bit more money on the on the front end because they were also sending reporters down to cover it. I mean, they were spending some serious bucks on this. So let's take these costs out on the children. So essentially oh. what they did is they they raised the price of these bundled newspapers from 50 cents to 60 cents for these 100 n- newspapers. But they now, didn't raise the cover price. No. So they had to really work a little bit harder, which for a while was fine. In fact, the newsboys weren't actually incensed by this because they were just selling. They were like hotcakes, right. you know? So it wasn't that wasn't really what annoyed them. Where the problem lies is that it was a very short war. It was basically the summer of 1898. By the next year, of course, there weren't those salacious war headlines that they could rely on. And it still cost 60 cents a bundle. it still cost 60 cents. Most newspapers did lower their rates once the wartime was over and circulation kind of went back down to normal. But two newspapers did not do that. Wild guess as to what these two newspapers were, of course. Could they by any chance be the journal and the world? They were exactly Pulitzer and Hearst. If you were newsies who sold those newspapers on street corners, that extra 10 cents was a lot of money in 1898. And these kids didn't have any money. If you think of a nickel a night just to go sleep at the lodging house, that cost is outrageous every day. 
But why couldn't they just sell another paper and just say, I'm not going to sell the Journal anymore. I'm going to sell the Herald. Because there were already other kids selling other papers. Like oh, they in were the like, same neighborhood. You couldn't, like, in the very same neighborhood. You couldn't just say, well, I'm going to sell some New York Times now. Because first of all, you already had those kids who were doing it. So it would cut into their price. And trust me, these they kids are beat you up. violent. You know, They just didn't have that option. They didn't have that flexibility, unfortunately. So they decided to organize in, in sort of a larger scale than what they had done in the past. Because keep in mind, now this is 1899. What had just happened the year before at the consultant? Consolidation of New York and the five boroughs. The city just got a whole lot bigger. So they decide that they're going to group together and they're going to fight this. Now they have, you know, they can reach out to all the other groups of newsies. So this is the part where I just dive into the strike. They're organized. They're they're hitting the street. They're enraged. Right, they're, they're ticked off. Day one was Thursday, July 20th, 1899. Now, it started with the evening edition of the world and the journal. Newsboys that night sold all the other papers except for those two. The newsboys themselves were striking, although you could find some editions of these papers for sale at newsstands and from some other venues. So it wasn't like there was no paper to be found. You could not get it. You just couldn't get it in usually the standard way. So at first, it was just a very minor inconvenience. Although, you know, the boys would actually, on that first night, surround the sellers who they could find, screaming, scab, scab. It's also interesting because I think both of us got a lot of information for this part of the podcast from the New York Times accounts, contemporary accounts, stories that were published in the Times day by day. And other papers were following this too, because of course, it was good for them. I mean, good for their own business that these two papers weren't being effectively distributed for about two weeks. Mm -hmm. And so people could buy other papers. One thing I find sort of offensive, though, sort of humorously charming now is the way in which they covered and interviewed uh, right. some of the newsboys because they actually like will write out their their quotes the things that they actually said but will do it in their little dialect such a literal representation of what they said really <laughs> did nothing to further their cause or no. make them look smarter it just made them look like oh adorable you're not serious on day two, then, on Friday, the strike actually grew from the Battery all the way up to the Bronx. According to the article on the Times, Greg, do you want to read it? Uh, there's, um, yes. There's 3,000 of us, and we'll win for sure. And the thing is, is actually, <laughs> it's written like that. I didn't, that's not my dialect. That's as, as spoken, as written. For sure. Yes, as spoken by Carol Channing. <laughs> The same day the, the boys paraded along Wall Street, they started having outdoor rallies. A couple hundred youngsters actually paraded a Bowery, and when they saw issues of the Journal in the World, they smashed them. They, they sort of pushed them off the newsstands and shredded them up. A lot of these kids would have things pinned on their clothing, and we were passing out these little handbills and everything. And one of them, one of the handbills said, Help us in our struggle to get a fair play by not buying the journal or the world. Help us. Do not ask for the world or the journal. They would be pinned to the kids' jackets or, you know, to the whatever they were wearing. And, and it would all be in yellow ink. Well, the, right. The names, the journal, and the world would actually be printed in yellow yeah, ink, uh -huh. as reported by the Times, yes. which I'm sure enjoyed that. On that second day, actually, there were some people selling the paper along Park Row. There were actually older women who were selling the papers. And when the boys were asked about this, they admitted that they weren't giving the women a hard time. In fact, they said, That's all right, boss. We're sorry, but we can't help it. We ain't fighting women. 
as it's actually as it was reported. Yes, and so there was a certain amount of chivalry, a little honor. And what I like is that on day three, on Saturday, July twenty second, the women joined the boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and everyone, they went on strike. Everyone started. Fun. This was a cause they could believe in. Now, while all this is happening, by the way, there's also a trolley strike that's happening in Manhattan uh, right. at the and, very same and time. And so many of the policemen were actually dealing with the trolley strike because you could even say it was more important. At one p.m. on the third day, hundreds of boys actually protesting in front of the World and Journal offices, whistling and screaming. It's actually broken up by the police. Two of the boys' leaders are arrested. The same day, Crazy Arborn, who's one of the most prosperous of the newsboys, handed out 1,500 pretzels to the striking boys. Of course, and that reminds me, by the way, Crazy Arborn. A lot of these boys are referred to by their sort of Street names, I guess the only way to really describe it, they all had nicknames. In most cases, in press reports and in any contemporary sources, they're actually mentioned by those names. Names like, of course, Crutch Morris and Blind Diamond, Young Monix. And our favorite, Barney Peanuts. (laughs) Barney Peanuts, how he got that name, like maybe he ate peanuts while he was delivering papers. I mean, there was Jim Gaiety, who must have just been like a a smiley, happy guy, a dandy on the corner. You also had Racetrack Higgins, who was one of the leaders of the groups. Then you had probably the best known of the newsboys of this particular time, a kid simply by the name Kid Blink. And why was he named Kid Blink? You know, we don't know a lot about Mr. Blink's life, but we do know that he got his name because he wore an eye patch. And it was very dramatic to see him, you know, leading, you know, hundreds of kids. And his name is actually Lewis Ballot. He was about 13 or 14 at the time. Now, by day five of the strike, there were demonstrations, there were rallies. The World and the Journal were actually advertising for 700 men who would get paid $2 a day to distribute the papers. Look at that. They had changed their business model, paying the men $2 a day, which was pretty good. And the guys who were hired by the papers didn't have an easy time either. They were being attacked by the boys. The delivery wagons would throw down the papers for the guys to sell, and those papers would be shredded. So there was a lot of shredding going on. (laughs) And that same night on Monday, there was a big rally on Broom Street at Norfolk Street down here in the Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. 3,000 children packed the streets. 3,000 children. It could could only fit like 2,000 and the rest of them were just were in the streets outside just, you know, raising their fists. Well, 3,000 before the event and then they all raced in and then there was another 3,000 still out in the streets (laughs) and that the police were there sort of, you know, keeping the peace, but there were no fights. There were great speeches, rousing speeches by the leaders we've already talked about, including Mr. Blink. And of course, the, I think the most important person there, Big Tim Sullivan, who was a state senator, but also he was connected in some way to most of the crime rings in the city. He was the most powerful man in downtown Manhattan. So they were starting to get really important people to show up as well and to join their cause. Well, by day seven of the strike, rumors start flying that perhaps actually some of the leaders are getting bribed by the papers to bring an end to the strike. People started to say that Kid Blink and David Simmons, another leader, were getting paid $400, in fact, to bring an end to the thing. So the boys all pack into a saloon downtown where Simmons addressed the crowd. And I do like that, you know, there was still... (laughs) These boys were able to address the crowds in a saloon. He... 
pulled his pockets inside out and pulled out his shirt to show he wasn't hiding $400 anywhere. Then he met with a subcommittee that was formed (laughs) at the time to investigate whether or not he was being truthful. It was deemed that he was telling the truth. But he resigned anyway. Yes, he and Kid Blink both kind of stepped down from their leadership roles. All of this really did have an effect on on the newspapers. According to reports, circulation from the newspapers went down from 360,000 down to 125,000. So Right, that happened at the world. So cut down two-thirds. And so those who did sell them, those who were able to sell them without being shredded and burned, um, would return them like 35% to 40% unsold. And you can imagine, I mean, for Joseph Pulitzer, what that really meant. Because he was banking on the advertising dollars and you can't charge it if you're not selling. By day 11, three newsboys were actually marched into court and charged with extortion because, according to the detectives, they had actually approached the world and the journal with a deal to call off the strike if they could just be paid $600. That's all. (laughs) And if the papers rejected the offer... They would just continue on the strike and make it even worse. One of the ways in which the strike ended and the situation was absolved is the fact that the adults stepped in and sort of signed on the dotted line here and said, well, you know what? This really is intolerable. And the News Dealers and Stationers Association, which was an organization of the adult newsstand sellers and those that sold newspapers and those they did have an organization, they came in and they said, we're with the newsboys. And the newsboys also by day 13, August 2nd, 1899, they elected a new leader themselves who was 50 years old, a man named James Neal. And suddenly there was an adult in charge of this and there are many outside adult organizations who were cooperating with them and the whole strike sort of fizzled out people often say that that the strike was over when Pulitzer and Hertz backed down and lowered the price but in fact that's not actually what happened they left the price at 60 cents but they agreed to take back all unsold papers at a 100 percent refund so essentially you were spending a little bit extra money but if you couldn't sell all those papers you were going to get that money back so in essence they did win now as you said that the they did try to organize as an actual union at this point as a matter of fact racetrack higgins that we mentioned was named the vice president um, with the adults james neal as the as the president you know this is a time of great reform of workers rights and child labor laws In the year 1900, there's actually 1.5 million children under the age of 15 who have jobs in within industry. In the United States. In the United States, yes. But by that time, there's activists really trying to change laws. I remember Jacob Breeze, a lot of reason he was able to affect so much amazing change on the city was because of his writing, but also because of his photography. Photography was a very powerful weapon at this time, because you think that a picture means a thousand words today. It means so much more than because people aren't used to seeing these things, and they're seeing them for the very first time. So you have the work of of photographers like Alice Austin, who is, of course, a a Staten Island photographer. You can even visit her house today. She's fabulous. um, From the 1890s to the 1930s, would take pictures of thousands of images of New York and would focus on everyday people. Amongst those pictures um, would be child workers and would be boot blacks and newsboys. But probably even more important to this particular cause is a man by the name of Lewis Hine. He was a professor that turned photographer and decided that he could use this as a tool to affect social change. So he ended up working for a group called the National Child Labor Committee, 
became the eyes of this group and the things that they wanted to do, would photograph all over the United States, would go down to coal mines, would go into giant factories, and of course, would come here in New York, take pictures of the newsboys. So while the, the, while the committee was actually working with state and federal legislatures, Hine was actually here changing the minds of actual Americans and, and New Yorkers. And it wouldn't be until 1938 with the Fair Labor Standard Act that there would be firm child labor laws for, uh, actually enacted. You know, today, that's sort of a dying craft, the, the craft of the newsboy. You have people passing out free newspapers. But, oh, absolutely. Um, um, and maybe in an afternoon, you'll see someone like with a stack of like, you know, morning posts selling them for 25 cents or whatever. The most that anyone's ever going to come across a newsie in this day and age is, of course, the movie starring Christian Bale. Right. This brings <laughs> us back to that Disney flick. That Disney flick. Which, which actually, you watched. Well, yeah, I just watched it last night. I, I, I don't really recommend it. But, you know, it's interesting. Like, they they show an old-time New York. The opening is actually um, at a statue of Horace Greeley. And you get a lot of, like, trolley action. But, I mean, it really it looks like an old west town. Like, I just the set's very generic. I feel like they just pulled up random props. But if you want real pictures of some of the newsboys, please come to the blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com where I'll have pictures of from Alice Austin and from Lewis Hine and from some other sources as, as well. And of course, you can also find us on Facebook, where we encourage you to become our friend. Before we go, we have a awesome announcement. We are trying something different this year. We are about to do a podcast miniseries. <gasps> That's right. We are going to tackle a topic that we haven't really discussed on this show. And we're going to discuss it for five episodes. Now, you might be like, what on earth could they be talking about? This is actually... That sounds vaguely like a threat, Fred. (laughs) But we're going to enjoy this, and we're talking about it for five topics over the course of this summer. Yes. This will be our summer series. Um, So the first one will be in two weeks, and it will be a solo show. But this is a topic that has various facets to it. So they can be listened to separately or linked together in a chronological stream of information. Wow, you can just feel the suspense building. What are we talking about, Greg? Well, you'll find out. I'll give some clues on our Facebook page Mm. and uh, maybe also on on the blog. But then that one will be the next episode. So thanks very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. (laughs) 